This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Sergio Silva. Sergio is a Senior Director of Web3 at Fireblocks, a platform that helps institutions custody and transfer funds. In this wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the impact of NFT royalties going to 0%, how Fireblocks helps institutions secure their wallets, and why stablecoins and cross-border payments will be adopted in emerging markets. Please enjoy this conversation with Sergio Silva. I'm excited to have Sergio Silva today on the show. Sergio, thanks for joining me. Thank you for the invite. I'm really, really excited for this next hour and a half. <laughs> so currently, Sergio is a senior director of Web3 at Fireblocks. He's passionate about NFTs, big on Twitter, crypto trader, has a similar background in TradeFi. So I've been really excited to do this. The place I wanted to start was NFT royalties at 0%. And I thought the reason why that would be an interesting place was I felt like as both of us were explaining this to people outside of this world, when we talked about artists and commissions and being able to make a real income with digital art, I think that was one of the first and best, most tangible use cases for other people. And here we are, not even a year later, and it sounds like the thing we told people that was really special is going away. So give the audience an update of what is this discussion about royalties going to 0% and your thoughts on it. First and foremost, it's important to acknowledge that the technology is great. But it always has limitations. And I think folks build businesses around this blockchain where royalties are not enforceable by smart contract. One of the biggest misconceptions, you always depended or relied on marketplaces to pay royalties to creators, which as you and I know, haven't been in traditional markets, as you are a bunch of traders and people looking for profit, the market will tend towards efficiency. So what we're seeing right now is new marketplaces are popping up that are catering to traders and thus that are providing the ability to trade without honoring royalties, which have always been part of the social contract. The move by OpenSea to potentially remove automatic royalty payment from collections obviously sends shockwaves across the space. But the reality is it's not changing anything that wasn't there. There's already plenty of sites where you can do OTC trades and not really pay royalties unless you really go out of your way to do so. And unfortunately, you know, that's what happens when we put something up to capitalism. It has a double edge. So we're seeing some of the negative part of that today with the royalty situation. I think when people skipped over this originally when they were trying to say, oh, it's so great, the artist makes a piece of art, it gets sold once and they make money. But then in the future, the royalty is they might make 5% off every transaction. Why isn't that in a smart contract? And could it be in a smart contract if it was written differently? First of all, Ethereum and EVM chains are the largest chains right now seeing NFT activity. 
the technology just doesn't allow for it to be automatically programmed, period. Could it be? Yeah, there's other chains that are working towards NFT-specific use cases where they are definitely looking at incorporating royalties automatically. The reality is Ethereum is not it. That's why we relied on the social contract level to make sure that creators get their 5%, 7%, 10%, or whatever they determine when there's a secondary sale. What is your outlook for the direction this goes? Because if it's capitalism and it all runs to 0% fees, then it would seem that the people who already raised a bunch of money through either fundraises or sales or past royalties are well-positioned, but newer artists, artists that haven't made these giant windfalls are kind of in a bad place. We first have to differentiate between you know collectible projects, avatars, PFPs, and artists. So artists, they came to the space and they were able to tap into this whole new audience. And I think one of the biggest things with NFTs is that we use the word a lot and it's become very, very cliche, but community, artists being able to connect with our collector community, being able to really have conversations, get to know them, that establishes that social contract. And if you see some of the largest collectors and some of the biggest artists, a lot of their pieces trade OTC precisely to cut out the marketplace fee, which is, you know, pieces of a hundred to hundred thousand dollars, those fees get sizable. However, those collectors will end up paying the royalties OTC directly to the creator wallets. I think that you don't have to be a big artist to have this kind of community and to be able to build that connectivity with your collectors. It is true, you know, people that minted on, for example, Nifty Gateway in February and March of 2021 were just right place, right time. Some great, great artists. But there was also artists there that never came back to NFT, some big names like, you know, Eminem and Grimes, who really didn't deserve those sales. So I think that we can't confuse the being at the right place, right time. But the reality is that this technology allows you to build a community around your art and make sure that regardless of where the royalties are automatically enforced or not, you have collectors who want to reward you for your work and want to you know, remain in good terms with you. Now, on the collectible PFP side, again, collections like the Board Yacht Club, right place, right time, they found a great community. They were able to monetize that. They were able to go out and raise a ton of money sell equity, sell their token, good for them. I personally think, for example, if you're trying to run a business, how do you project your income just from royalties? How do you say, hey, we are an enterprise now, a corporate, our 12-month income depends on royalties. This is what that's going to look like. Like You have no idea how the market's going to react, how many times it's going to be secondary trades. So I think what is happening today is, unfortunately, the market's pushing projects to look for other sources of income. If we just stay on art for a second, not on the PFPs, I'd like to think you're right, but maybe that's my skeptical side that people are going to pay this when they're not demonstrating that they have to do it. Yeah, that might pay someone later. And I'm sure there are some great collectors that want to reward the artist that they were paying and not maybe the seller, but actually give some of that money back. I just thought the fact that they were automatically taken out, even though we're going to potentially lose this because of the technological edges you point out, I just worry that it changes the landscape more dramatically than people are maybe anticipating. It definitely does. It just completely changed kind of like the paradigm or the framework that people had of Web3 coming into the space. However, I think maybe it's also important to realize that especially digital artists who were probably just their only ways of monetizing their talent and their creativity was contract work with big brands. 
now have found a gigantic marketplace for primary sales. And let's focus on the positives here, right? Like this is a market that didn't exist two years ago and it's grown to billions and billions of dollars. And there's other ways to monetize that. We just saw Xcopy, which is arguably the best and biggest artist in the crypto native part of the world. Somebody who's been here for years, who was producing art before the hype and the money and the froth, and whose work is actually great social commentary for the different stages that we've seen in crypto art. Today, just say he's removing royalties from one of his collections or their collections and just keeping back some of the supply, just like Larva Labs did with the punks. The punks don't have royalties. And what Larva Labs did was they kept 10% of the supply. And as the project got bigger, they sold some of those punks to really capitalize or monetize their creation. So there's definitely other avenues. I think this was iteration 1.0, just like Bitcoin was cryptocurrency 1.0. Let's start looking at NFTs 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. I hear you. And I'm hopeful that this experiment comes back. I always think about all of this is just playing with incentives. And I thought the royalty incentive structure for the artist was just a really cool mechanism. But I get it. There's only so much you can do about it because of which way the markets are going to trend. I just hope we see it brought back at some point in the future in some fashion. I agree with you. I think artists should continue to be able to monetize their talent, their creativity. But you know, it also comes with risk. When you put yourself out to a market, you get both sides of the sword. That's why artists should maybe interact more with collectors that might have some business experience, help them understand, you know, like, this is really bad right now, but this is what you can do to protect yourself. And when things are really, really good, you know, maybe understand like, hey, let's start thinking about when this cycle turns again. You know, maybe let's not mint 2000 open edition. Let's think about that and normalizing things. You know, the space is what, a year and a half, two years old. It's not complete. There's a lot of work to be done. Sometimes we don't like the outcome, but I think as we continue moving forward, I think consensus is we want to see artists get paid. We want to see artists get the royalties. So that's good. Let's make it work. I'm excited to talk about Fireblocks because I think it's a really interesting company. But before we get there, why don't you give people a little bit of a background? You know, you were just tweeting right before we got on about how you got into NFTs and what it was like and all the people you met. So why don't you give people a little bit about your backstory from finance to eventually buying pictures of CryptoPunks? I was born and raised in Mexico on the border with Texas. I learned English in high school and had a lot of luck. I finished my high school in Texas, then did college in Mexico for a couple of years, decided to finish in the States, finished at UT San Antonio place I love dear to my heart. I lucked into an internship with Goldman Sachs. And that's a whole, whole different story. It's a long story. But yes, next thing you know, it's summer 2008, which obviously the great financial crisis is just raging. And I'm sitting there on the trading floor of Goldman Sachs. I didn't know what Goldman Sachs was six months prior to that. But it became my whole life. I loved it. I spent five years there. I graduated college, then went back for a full-time job. Then Barclays recruited me to go out and build their Latin America equity sales desk. I spent seven years at Barclays and then the pandemic hit. I think everyone you know, started questioning what they were doing and where they were doing it. And I was ready for a new challenge. And so during the later part of 2020, I started looking closer into crypto. And in doing so, I subscribed to a couple of newsletters. The Defiant was one of them. And they had an article about a crazy person spending $140,000 on a crypto punk. Now I read it, I laughed, I made fun of it in my morning note to my clients the next day. And I was writing about how stupid people were, but maybe like we were stupider because the dollar was going worthless. 
just shown by the fact that people were spending six figures on JPEGs. But I don't know. I'm just curious by nature. And so I downloaded Discord by myself in the CryptoPunks Discord. And over the weekend of Valentine's of 2021, I just literally fell down the rabbit hole. And I don't think I have ever felt what it's like to actually fall down a rabbit hole. But I came out of that rabbit hole like three days later. I had bought a punk. I was shaking when I bought it. I think 10K for it. And I was in Wall Street. So it's not like the amount of money. It's a lot of money, but it's not like it was a gigantic proportion. But just the fact that it was 10 grand spent on a JPEG. But it just changed my life. And I'm really, really grateful to have seen that CryptoPunk purchase. By the way, that was G Money on his 8Punk. And now Giza is a dear friend of mine. I remember when G Money did it. And I remember the headlines around it. And he's like, why I spent $140,000 on this picture? So I'm always fascinated by people that have a really strongly held opinion, are curious, question it, and then change it. So what was it that moved from writing an article about how this is the silliest thing you ever saw to actually putting $10,000 into it? Cliche word of care again, but the community. I went to the Discord and I quickly realized that the CryptoPunk community was full of OGs and builders. I think the word building today, you know, has a bunch of different meanings. A lot of them don't really mean much. But back then, it was guys like Snowfro, who had just built art blocks and was talking about the project and helping us understand why generative art was so important, especially combined with blockchain technology. To me, that reminded me of my early days at Goldman, being for the first time on a Bloomberg chat and being able to read really smart commentary from some of the top traders on the street talking to like hedge funds, talking to like big pension funds and realizing, wow, you know, there's a lot of really smart people out there and I want to be close to them. So when I'm on the punks discord those early days and I get that same feeling of like, wow, this is obviously technology that's going to change the world. And here's this close knit community that is really, really smart. They've been around. You can just tell when you're chatting with somebody, especially after spending 12 years on Bloomberg, like I guess you develop a really good sense of reading people through their words that I decided, okay, this is something different. There is something very special here, and I want to be part of this club. I've never thought about this, but we had talked in the past about the Punks Discord and my experience with it. But what happened to it? Did your whole group of people like go somewhere else and now you're still chatting? Or is because like it's definitely not what it was before, is it? It's back to like a good spot. I think when you came in was a few months after I did, and the community had really shifted because the Punks Discord was the center of the universe for NFTs. It was Punk's Discord and the Nifty Gateway Discord, which also meant that people who wanted to shill projects, people who wanted to take your ETH, the best place to advertise was the Punk's Discord. And so the punks tried to be very inclusive. And so people could come in and chat there. You know, it wasn't token gated. And it was part of the punk's mission to be inclusive and help onboard more folks onto NFTs. Unfortunately, that backfired. And that openness reminds me of what we're seeing today in like the Web3 influencer space, where the loudest voices, you know, it's just like an intention economy. They come in and they create conflict. They're trying to sell you stuff. They're coming after your ETH. So yeah, folks left. Friend groups were created. Little DAOs were formed. So trying to get that same feeling that we had before this explosion of interest in NFTs to the punks discord becoming what it became. And it was like, it became a really sad place. Today, the Punks Discord, it's been cleaned up. We also have like a Punks Telegram that's kind of a little bit more on the social side rather than talking about the actual collection. And obviously, there's a lot of other groups that are you know, formed by majority of Punks 
where like that social circle now has become kind of like the old punks discord. Very cool. Someday I'm going to make it to one of your punk brunches, but not yet. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Fireblocks. I think one of the ways we first met was as this investment and trading was getting out of hand or larger than I think a lot of us expected. We all started to go down a separate kind of sub rabbit hole on custody and protection of these assets. It's one thing to spend $10,000 on a crypto punk. It's another thing when it's worth half a million dollars and you're wondering, like, how do you safely secure this thing? So tell us, what does Fireblocks do? We are the largest provider of digital asset infrastructure in the crypto market. We seek to help every business to be able to take and interact with crypto, period. Our founders saw a few years ago that crypto infrastructure has really only been created for the retail people like you and me, browser-based wallets, hardware wallets. There's not a lot of the checks and balances that an enterprise-level application needs. That's what Fireblocks is. We provide the wallet infrastructure and then additional services on top of that that allow businesses to really come onto crypto, be able to offer crypto, receive crypto, interact with crypto in a secure, efficient way. So everything from DeFi-focused fund, crypto exchanges, OTC desks, all kinds of providers of crypto services use us to secure their wallets, which obviously, as we know, at the end of the day, your wallet is really the vehicle with which you navigate the crypto waters. What makes the Fireblocks technology, which is often referenced as special, these like MPC, like what does that mean that makes this technology so special? MPC means multi-party computation. And what this is, is a kind of cryptographical technology that allows you to have distributed sets of information. And then you pass an algorithm to get the aggregate of that information without each independent set finding out what the other sets know. We use this to protect the private keys for the wallets that sit within our infrastructure. So when we create the private key for a new account, we create the private key in uh, three shares. One share gets uploaded to one cloud, a second share gets uploaded to a second cloud, and then the third share gets encrypted and put into the iPhones, Androids of our clients, users, traders, CFO, whatever it might be. So that when they need to sign a transaction on chain on behalf of the company, we activate that MPC algorithm, we pass it through the three key shares, and we take only the signature information. Therefore, the private key is never at the same place at the same time. You were talking a lot about helping businesses. Is Fireblocks solely focused on just institutions? So we're a B2B company. Our technology powers a lot of retail-facing solutions. So like Revolut in Europe has millions of users. Their wallet infrastructure runs on Fireblocks. BTG Bank, which is the largest investment bank in Latin America, they have a crypto offering called Mint with a Y. That infrastructure runs for Fireblocks. So we help those businesses also protect retail funds. But yes, to answer your question, we only service institutions at this time. One thing, I mean, this isn't with your Fireblocks hat on. This is just more like Observer, more with your old Barclays hat on, is that When I try to explain to people how TradeFi works, I would say there's a custodian, and then there's a brokerage company, and then there's exchanges. And none of these three things should meet. Some people might own both, but they're usually like heavily walled off from a regulatory standpoint. And what's interesting about crypto is that there's a lot of places where the custodian also runs an exchange, also runs an investment business. Like They're all blurred together. Fireblocks, when I first found it, it started to look like, okay, this is just 
purely what I would know of in the traditional world. Was that done on purpose? Like Firebox could have launched an exchange, could have done a B2C, could have gone down the path of a lot of these exchanges. Why did they stay just B2B? It's the ethos of the space, not your keys, not your coins. We help businesses and enterprises secure their own assets. We're not a custodian. People use the word custodian around us a lot, but no, we're just the technology providers so that enterprises can custody their own assets or obviously their third-party assets for their clients, whoever that might be. And why is that? We want to be the foundational layer of crypto across the space. And so we're very blockchain agnostic. We currently support over 40 blockchains. We have thousands of different tokens available to be custodied using our technology. But at the end of the day, our clients go out and build whatever they need to build. So by choosing to just be that technology layer, we're able to power a lot more different use cases, businesses, and the like. I guess I want to get the words right because I think it's important. There's custodians, there's qualified custodians, there's self-custody, there's technology layer. What are the differences in what I just said of those terms? Qualified custodians are counterparties that will hold third-party assets and they will do so separate from their own assets, usually under some sort of regulatory framework with all kinds of licensing and registration. Self-custody means you being able to just custody your own assets. Think of a $100 bill in your wallet. You're the custodian of that $100 bill. In the case of the qualified custodian, if you deposit that bill into your bank account, then the bank is your qualified custodian. Custodian just refers to who holds the keys to those assets. That's why sometimes it's used the wrong way, but it just means where are those assets sitting and who has the private keys. I think the word qualified usually applies more, like I said, on the legal sense. And then technology layer, we're a tool to enable self-custody, but we also enable custodial solutions, right? Because for example, Bank of New York Mellon, which is the largest traditional asset custodian in the world, is using Fireblocks to build out their crypto custody offering. So they will use Fireblocks Power Wallets to hold assets on behalf of pension funds, hedge funds, and the like. So hopefully that helps a little bit with the definitions. It does. I think because the definitions are so important, the reason why people hear it is they'll hear their custodians powered by Fireblocks or is using Fireblocks. And it sometimes gets confusing to people over what exactly is being done where. Maybe that's a good point to talk about wallets, another like loaded thing. And I think that when people hear wallet, for most people that are probably listening to this, they think of like a MetaMask wallet on their browser or a phantom wallet, some sort of hot wallet where they're able to interact with crypto. But I think you have a much more beautiful taxonomy of what a wallet is. Let's go through that. Sure. And it's actually very timely because this morning I published a new piece on understanding wallets. I think using the term wallet is probably one of the biggest misses that the space has when it comes to helping folks understand the technology itself. So you're right. Today, wallet, people think of a MetaMask, which is a browser extension that allows you to custody, to protect, to manage your private keys, and also to you know, see balances on your account, as well as sign transactions. But really, what is a wallet? If we talk about just Ethereum and EVM chains, actually, the Ethereum white paper defines user accounts as either EOAs, which mean externally owned accounts, which are the wallets that you and I think about, right? Like the account, the safety deposit box on chain, where I have my Ether and you have your board apes. And then contract accounts, which are the smart contracts 
that execute X transaction depending on a signed message. Focusing on the AOAs, so the traditional wallet in our head here, these are protected by a set of private keys. So the private key is a long, long, long number that's pretty much just think of like a safety deposit box. It's the actual key that opens that box and allows you to access your assets and really establish ownership of that wallet. Now, that wallet is represented by a set of what we call public keys, or also known as the address. That's pretty much just kind of like, think of it like the number outside the box that tells everybody, hey, this is where you can send assets, or this is where I'm holding all my assets. So the combination of all that is really what makes up the concept of a wallet. Now, MetaMask or like a ledger, those are tools that allow you to manage those private keys. But the reality is that your actual wallet is always on chain. You know, people say my board ape is in my MetaMask or my board ape is in my ledger. The reality is that your board ape is always on chain. It never leaves the blockchain. Now you can put the private keys that control that wallet into a USB drive and only plug it in to sign transactions when you need to sell the ape or, you know, establish ownership of that account. The reality is that it's very different things that all get put into the same bucket. That's really helpful. So I think the different types of wallets is kind of interesting of how people use them. You have treasury wallets, you have operational wallets, you've got user wallets. I think when people think about it, they think about the first level is, oh, I have a MetaMask, I want to go buy something or sell something. But talk to me a little bit more about the different use cases of wallets. This has really come up a lot in conversations that we have with Web3 clients, which is a lot of like non-financial institutions that are coming into the Web3 NFT space and started to think of ways in which they can you know, put their IP on chain and the like. A lot of people, when they first think about crypto, they think of a wallet as only the place where they're going to have their currency, right? Their Ether, or maybe where they're going to receive the royalties, not realizing that if you're going to interact and let's say uh, start a game and sell in-game assets, you're going to need to deploy a contract account, so a smart contract. And in order to do so, you will need a wallet to manage that account. So the first kind of like the wallet that holds your currency, that is your typical treasury wallet. That's where your money sits. But then you have the operational wallet, which is the wallet that you will be using to manage, deploy, update smart contracts, which are then kind of like the building blocks for a lot of the Web3 activity. Also the same thing for the DeFi activity. And then you have user wallets, which for, let's say, a Web3 game, that is onboarding hundreds of thousands of users, but those users don't want to have their own MetaMask or their own like phantom wallet, the game's going to have to provide them a wallet. So again, this will be user wallets that probably don't hold assets that belong to that game provider or that company. These wallets will also not have capabilities to deploy smart contracts that we have in the company. This will be wallets that hold you know, in-game tokens for those clients. So I think those are the three main uses when it comes to kind of like Web3 players. Of course, wallets can be much more than that. You also have, for example, now your wallet becoming your identity using stuff like ENS or Lens Protocol, where really the wallet really is kind of like your user ID. So you can start thinking of like how to build on top of that identity. And that's why I think the fact that we kind of think of wallets in a very narrow way. It's probably a big miss, and I hope that we can change that together and have people understand the different kinds of wallets and the different elements of the wallet. Because at the end of the day, 
this is like your building blocks. And if you lose access to your wallet or your wallet gets compromised, you can lose a lot more than the ether inside of it. It's really, really important that people really realize that. As you were kind of walking through the different use cases, it made me think of something that used to happen. And I wanted to get your take on the current situation. I remember when people first started minting and they raised a lot of money and then they're like, oh, we have to transfer this out. And we all thought the money was stolen because they hadn't thought about, okay, we have an operational account, a treasury account, an account to pay people. And so when the money was moving around, it would confuse the hell out of people. But it brought up this other point, which gets to your point about this being an identity that yeah, if you put in a couple thousand dollars and move it around, that's one thing. But is everyone going to see Sergio's bank account and all of his assets constantly real time? You've got security concerns. You've got just personal privacy issues. So how do you think we handle this wallet as an identity with the issue of privacy? I think we take full advantage of the blockchain technology, which allows us to have 200 wallets if you need. So personally, like I have my DeFi wallet. This have never been linked to anything that goes back to like Sergito and my NFT personality. I have my NFT vaults, which hold my punks and stuff that I will probably never sell. I have wallets that I use when I'm like trading NFTs or just minting NFTs real quick or offering NFTs for sale. Wallets are free. You can get you know a thousand wallets so you wish. And there's a thousand ways to protect them. And so it's important to realize that there's no privacy in blockchain. You're totally right. If you look at a blockchain-based company, you can see all the money that's being moved around once those wallets get doxxed. You can't do the same for like Facebook. We don't know what their payroll wallet is. We don't know what their like supplier bank account is. Like we don't know what their bank accounts are. We're missing that in crypto. It's getting built via you know ZK and optimistic rollups and all this stuff, all those privacy layers. Still pretty early. There goes another cliche term in the space, but as a user, you have a lot of sovereignty. And that's why I also think it's our responsibility to educate ourselves in everything and really be able to maximize our use of the technology while being super aware of the risks that come with it. I guess we're going to try to get you to say all the cliches this entire interview. That'll be my goal. Do like a Web3 bingo. I think your point about having 200 accounts is interesting. I guess where it starts to break down a little bit for me is that some of the best use cases are you have a brand and it wants to identify its most powerful fans or its biggest users, or you want to connect with punks and you're trying to balance like, do I want people to be aware that I have these things or do I want to have them hidden away and not really have the connection back to the end user? So I'm curious, what have you seen? I know that to your point, it was still early and there's some privacy technology, but where have you seen brands trying to build on these layers and impress you the most? The brands that I've seen come into the space, and obviously there's a lot of them now, I don't think it's top of mind for them, which is also sometimes a challenge because they'll be on ramping a ton of users. And if they're not thinking about the repercussions of this lack of privacy, it could be problematic down the road. Where I've seen stuff be super interesting is them using the blockchain's public nature to you know, maybe airdrop a token that will then bring them business or bring them visits. And I think that's super powerful. There's only been a few of them that have done it right. I think it's really, really ripe opportunities there for the taking. But a lot of these brands are still very hesitant to really come in full force into the space. There's a lot of limitations. Even some of the public companies are not allowed to hold crypto on their balance sheets. As you and I know, without Ether to pay the gas, there's nothing you can do. Your day as representing Fireblocks in this space, what percentage or 
I don't know what the right number is, but I'm thinking of percentages. Do you time with spend time with traditional companies, companies that had nothing to do with crypto versus crypto native firms? I would say today it is about 50-50 because of the role that I'm in. We have a lot of Web3 gaming studios and Web3 focused clients that are building with us. We help them think about the best way of deploying different architecture. And that takes half the time. And the other half is a lot more educational. It's a lot less operational and it's more talking to traditional institutions who are eager to come in. But it's funny, a lot of them, you meet their teams and they've been a month into the job. Or it's really young people that they hired, which, you know, in a hierarchical institution, it's a lot of headwind they have to go through to really educate their executives or their management teams. So we try to give them the tools to do that. How much of it is going to be, in your opinion, where Firebox is a technology layer? Do you think we're going in a direction of an abstraction? I'm thinking about like NBA Top Shot, a digital trading game that was trying to make it as away from NFT or wallet as possible. Like it looked more like a traditional Web2 company, even though on the back end was on-chain activity versus having to teach users and educate them about private keys and public keys and all these security concerns. I think the big winners are going to be those companies that provide those EC on-ramp solutions where they abstract the blockchain and put it in the back. I don't foresee users coming in with their own wallets if they're not really comfortable in using them and then kind of like taking full responsibility for the assets. I mean, let's be honest, like it's not the most convenient thing. Like I don't want to go to an airline and you know pay them 500 bucks to buy a ticket back to Texas and then kind of like also get the responsibility for that ticket. I forget my tickets at home all the time. I want to be able to get to the airport and print it out again. But if I forget my ledger, that's it. I'm out of luck. So I think it's a bit of a pipe dream that it's going to be self-custodial. I really do think it's going to be walled gardens. It's going to be experiences that are managed by those companies where you have the optionality as a user to take out your asset if you so desire, which is the big unlock. I don't think the, yeah, let me pay you, but then I get all the responsibility is the unlock. It's more on, hey, let me pay you. And if I decide to take that asset away from you, then I have the opportunity to do so. I picture my mom sometimes thinking, will she want to like be responsible for custodying her concert tickets? No, I don't think so. Like She's not going to want that. It's not going to be something that is appealing to anybody. On the flip side, let's say everything was self-custodial and I'm a new company and they say, hey, by the way, I'll take care of the ticket for you. You don't have to worry about it. You'll probably capture a lot of market share. So it's going to be mostly custodial. Eventually down the road, that might change. But for the big enterprises, there's also other things they have to think about, like KYC and AML. Like They do live within jurisdictions that require them to identify where funds are coming from. And so if you have too open of economies, like you run a big risk of people using your NFTs, your tokens, whatever, to do nefarious things. And so that is a big risk for them as well. So I really do think we're going to abstract all the blockchain to the back, but we'll give people choices. At the end of the day, that is super, super valuable. And it's not something that we currently have today. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. But I think about that example. And I just wonder, is this weird balance between the abstractions obviously makes it easier for the um, end client, but without the self-custody and the actual taking accountability, I just wonder what would move a company 
to open its walled garden up. So you think about the ticket example, just for simplicity, Ticketmaster handles all of that for you. And they have basically this oligopoly, even monopoly in some ways on ticketing. There's no reason for them to open up what they've built for years, but a disrupting factor would be if those tickets were on chain and an artist could airdrop stuff to fans, then you start to think about like a real open possibility. And so this is one of those tensions I think a lot about of if we don't abstract it away, then you're right, your mom and my sisters and your sister, like they're not going to use it. But if you make it too abstracted away, then just the company that built that abstraction, they're going to have back to have all the centralized control again. Okay, cliche number three, we're too early. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the jury is still out. I think there's a lot of work to be done. I do think that users will tend towards simplicity. And that simplicity comes mostly with abstraction. I also think if more users wanted to self-custody, we wouldn't have just 200,000 self-custodial wallets trading NFTs today. We'll have millions. Even if you give an, a user non-custodial wallet checkout, they still need to go and buy Ether somewhere and like move it over from an exchange so they can have enough to pay the gas. So like use that token they just bought or transfer it over to like, you know, our hardware wallet and the like. So the road forward, I think, is the one that has the less friction. And that definitely comes with a more centralized offering. Yeah. I was reading someone's essay about how tech went through this utopia phase of they were idolized and revered as like doing no evil. And then they got bigger. And when they got bigger, that abstraction that started off as this wonderful technology slowly started to get people worried about having their data and selling it, monetizing the user and having all of these new complex feelings towards these things that people use in everyday life. And so I think when people push Web3 or NFTs, royalties or crypto, one of the strong cases that they're usually pushing at is like, oh, the user can kind of take back their identity. They can own their own data. But I think you're making a good point that one, it's not all or nothing. And if you push so far, you're going to keep 200,000 people and not get to millions anyway. It goes back to just human nature, really. We're super cyclical. We go through, if you look at, for example, TV, cable, streaming, now Netflix is putting ads and giving you a choice whether you want to pay less to get ads. We see that with technology, obviously technology, that the cycles are a lot faster. But to your point, it's going to be really, really hard for folks to not only take in the responsibility of custodying their own assets, but also put up with the hassle that it takes to custody your own assets. So it's kind of like a double whammy against that. We're going to have to unramp them first. Think of, for example, a Coinbase, where if you want to buy Ether for the first time, you go through Coinbase, KYC, you put in your like account details, you wire money over. Maybe the six months down the road, you're happily trading on chain and you go through Uniswap. Now, whenever you want to buy Ether, you just buy it on Uniswap. You don't use Coinbase. But you had to go through Coinbase that first time. I think NFTs are really going to have to go through that centralized exchange moment first, which I kind of already did a little bit with Top Shot obviously Nifty Gateway, we're going to have to do it again on a larger scale before people are fully committed to you know full self-custody on-chain life. All right. And that moves me to this topic about vulnerability and accountability. And so you've been very open about it. You're a big trader. You've made millions of dollars in all this stuff. So it's not a shame thing. But for someone who's talked about all this stuff and handles self-custody, let's talk about your crypto punk and the round trip it took. Do you want to start with the backstory here? I'm somebody that likes to test out the technology that I use and the use cases. Obviously, I'm talking to companies all day long, and I like to have a level of expertise. It's not just like a salesperson selling a product. Really, Fireblock sells itself. But really be able to talk about what's happening on chain and what the process is and different steps. I'm really interested in NFT financing. 
Nifty Five is like the leading decentralized protocol that allows people to lend and borrow against NFTs. And so I decided to try it out, to test it out. I was also bearish um, Ether. So I figured, hey, why not take a loan against one of my punks and then take that Ether and short it? It'll be a great hedge for a spot. And the interest rate was like low, it was like 10% annualized. The loans are only like one or two months. So I did that and I marked my calendar wrong or the date when I had to pay back my loan. I marked it for a day later than the loan was due. Now, this is decentralized self-custody. Therefore, my punk gets put into an escrow smart contract. If I don't pay the loan back on time, the lender receives the punk and I obviously get to keep the ether that I received, which is precisely what happened. I marked the date wrong. I got an email that said, hey, your loan has been foreclosed. And thus, my punk had moved on to the lender's wallet. And at the time, that was it. There's nothing you can do. Again, that double-edged sort of self-custodial and you know permissionless finance where the smart contract executes on its code. That's it. There's nobody to call. There's no customer service. There is no, hey, I'm so sorry. This was obviously a mistake. No. I can't even imagine what you felt like in the moment you saw that happen. How did you even realize? Was it the email? I got an email. So the platform usually sends emails like seven days and three days out. For some reason, those emails jammed. They didn't send out. The only email I got was that I had been foreclosed on. I felt absolute despair. It's also the punk that I use for my identity. It's been with me since day one. It's me at this point. I am not going to lie. I actually said this on my podcast. I cried out of frustration, much more than the monetary loss. Obviously, the sentimental value of losing my on-chain identity, you know, you're so used to the market in the centralized world always taking care of you, making sure, like, hey, here's a reminder, like, right, your appointment for the barber. Like, I just got an email, like, I'm getting my haircut tonight. I got, like, a text and an email reminding me of that. Like, not even my mom used to remind me like that. And so we're very cuddled by web two companies. They're really good at babying us. Whereas Web3 is not it. And you really rely on yourself. And so what ended up happening? It's a happy ending, but I think it's an interesting story of what happened next. Yeah, it's a happy ending that cost me six figures. Well, five figures. (laughs) So what happened was, good thing about having some sort of name recognition in the space. I tweeted out what had happened. I was trying to get in touch with the lender. I traced them back, but they were not really tied to any particular person. A lot of other friends who have big followings, everybody was retweeting and showing support, showing love. Eventually, somebody reached out from the lender's team. I mean, they told me it was like a friend, but I'm pretty sure it was somebody from the lender's team. The lenders on this platform are really like well-known DAOs. So I'm sure it was probably like even some friends and can't blame them. They reached out. They agreed to sell me the punk back below the floor. They made like 50 grand for my mistake. But yeah, I got the punk back and I was happy about it. I mean, it's an interesting topic of NFT collateralization. I think one pe- thing that people mistake about some of the DeFi stuff is that it's almost always collateralized or over collateralized in some fashion. That like true credit crises come from uncollateralized debt when there's trust, when someone lends money that they don't have. But something like this, it's an over collateralized loan. It's an interesting idea. I got the same pitch. I looked at it and I was just like, I was kind of scared that I might mess up. And then when you tweeted, I'm like, I'm definitely not doing it because I'm going to mess up. But what's the use case of this? Just think of the millions of dollars sitting in wallets, NFT, blue chip assets. There's actually like big funds now, institutional funds. Curated fund has like $40 million. 6529 fund has like $70 million. 
those are assets that are just sitting there. Hopefully for them, you know, they're accruing value as the market appreciates them more. But if you can take that and put it to work, if you can borrow against it and then use that money to continue to participate in the space or whatever might get some liquidity, back to one of the cliches, it's still very early. I think that for folks that want to generate some extra yield, lending against those assets in an over collateralized way makes a ton of sense. Like the guy or like the team that got my punk, punk floor was like 68 ETH and they had lent me 32 ETH. So even if I had defaulted on purpose or I couldn't pay the loan back, they stood to make a lot of money from being able to sell that asset in the market. And then in between the time I borrowed and when that happened, you know, they were making 10% annualized, which obviously right now in Trad5, you know, rates have really spiked. But on chain or for people that have no trust in their financial systems around the world, this is a good opportunity to generate yield while at the same time, you know, potentially buy really good assets at really, really attractive valuations. So, you know, I think as the ecosystem continues to develop, we'll see more and more of that. And we're seeing a lot of sophisticated players coming and like do strategies on that. And I think I'm really bullish on that whole space over the long term. We'll see how it play out. So you mentioned global banking. I think a lot of people who are based in the US have a very US-centric focus. And I've always appreciated that you always had a bit more of a global view, obviously, in your prior roles and your upbringing. I want to move to the topic of kind of global payments and what this means, both chain and using for Fireblocks. So let's start with the 50,000 view of global payments and how the system works and how crypto might have a place in that. One of the first times I used the blockchain after I had bought some crypto was I sent money back to my mom and my sister in Mexico. Now, they live in the border town where there's a lot of cartel activity. Therefore, banks are really hesitant to let you withdraw a lot of cash to prevent, again, money laundering and just bad actors taking advantage of the system. This obviously puts a lot of burden on people that are not doing bad things and just want to be able to you know, pay their mortgage. And it also limits folks to you know the nine to five and going to the branches on Monday through Friday. And when I had to send money back home, it was like a Saturday and I was able to send them die over the Ethereum blockchain in two minutes, it cost me $2, whereas a wire from my bank costs $50 if it goes international. So if you think about being able to do that at scale for folks that are not in developed markets where you might hate Jay Powell and everything else that's going on, but like you still have FDIC insurance for $200,000 across the board here in the States. It's a lot of countries, even like Mexico, where the government can devaluate your currency or stuff like in Argentina, where they take away your ability to withdraw money. So having the ability to protect your own assets, to manage them, to not rely on third parties is huge, huge, huge in emerging countries. For example, Africa, the continent has the second largest number of crypto users. And nobody really thinks about that. Now, these are users that you know transfer mostly stable coins Actually, the Tron blockchain is the largest blockchain in Africa, and they're just sending USD back and forth for micropayments and the like, because they don't trust the banks or the banking infrastructure might not be there. And there's a bunch of requirements that normal people that don't have jobs might not be able to fulfill to get a bank account. As you start thinking of this on a broader scale and internationally, and just the level of business that is being done cross border, and then you present it against the current framework that we have where the world is a mesh of a bunch of different countries 
with a bunch of different regulations, with a bunch of different everythings. So being able to send value from, you know, the US to like Japan requires a bunch of different intermediaries and requires a lot of time and processes and checks and balances, which, you know, you can make a case that some of them are necessary, but then a lot of them are just very predatory. They also make it very, very expensive for small amounts to be sent over. So if you're selling a product online and you're only capturing like $12 in revenue, but then it costs you $8 to collect that revenue, then you're a big disadvantage. And this is where crypto comes in, right? Where the blockchain layer becomes that settlement layer and you're able to send value across the world and do so in a permissions way, very inexpensively, depending on which blockchain you use, just completely turns the game on its head. That's kind of like the payments use case at a you know, 30,000 feet view. When it comes more specifically to Fireblocks, we bought a company called First Digital earlier this year. They're focused on payments on blockchain. And we just announced our payments engine at Money 2020, which is a big, big fintech conference in Vegas. We're working with some of the largest PSPs, so payment service providers, which are some of those intermediaries I was mentioning to be able to enable businesses to accept crypto, you know, mostly stable coins, and be able to process those payments, get their money sooner than the usual current model, which is like net 30, net 90, which means businesses have to wait 30 days or three months to get the revenue. So really make the system much more efficient using blockchain. I know you're really close with your family, with your mom and your sister. And so I'm curious, when you were sending that money, First of all, how did you explain it to them? This is probably the 30-foot level because I'm not sure they knew what you were up to. And then how do they react to this big pivot from Mexico to Texas to Goldman Sachs at the highest levels of Wall Street to, hey, I'm going to go leave and chase digital money around the world? So I had opened an account with a local exchange for my sister before I left because I had left some dollars there with her and I'm like, just put it into Ether. The first transfer actually was from her to me. I don't know, in Mexico, like there's a lot of different things that happen you kind of like have to remain very flexible. You have to realize where I grew up. It's really a border town, just like Brooklyn and Manhattan, where there's a river between both the Texas city and the Mexico city. There's a bridge. You go through customs and immigration, which is like a drive-through, kind of like the airport, but in a car. I was going to school in the US. You know, you get groceries sometimes from one side of the border and the other. So that duality in the day-to-day life kind of like helps, I guess, just be open to, okay, digital money, let's do it. Especially when it made things easier for them. Where it's like, okay, now I just need to send to my local bank from the crypto app and go cash it out instead of like doing all the whole process of receiving dollars internationally. And then the next question, you know, I was very lucky that my parents were always thinking, let's see how far they can go. They made a big sacrifice by enrolling my sister and I in a US school. So it's a small private school that had an English program. So we dedicated one year of our education to learn English. And that just changed my life. And I think from then on, just seeing how much they sacrificed, you know, making pesos, paying tuition in dollars, making the effort to like pay for stuff in the US for us. Even like uniforms in the US are a lot more expensive than the clothes are in Mexico. And it was a private school because it's the only way you can get a student visa. So they made all those sacrifices. So for me and my sister, once we graduated, we're like, all right, what's the best way to pay them back? is to really go out there and really fulfill that potential. And so that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Kind of like pay it back, pay it forward by 
trying to be my best. And so that ended up at Goldman and then Barclays. And then when I saw this big opportunity that blockchain, I think, is going to change the world. And when I had personally seen, you know, the JPEGs are fun, but especially with like you know, the ability to send capital across borders and what that impact is going to have. I think they were like, all right, we trust you. And yeah, they're pretty excited. They've been on the journey with me. My mom really got into step in. My sister, I gave her a bunch of NFTs for my nieces. She was able to cash out some of them and it was really like a good windfall for them. So it's been a really, really cool thing to see them come in this journey with me. I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of entire countries, but I am curious where you've had this bi-national life where you're in New York and you're in Mexico. I follow you, you know, you're hopping all around the globe. How would you compare and contrast culturally Mexican view of crypto versus American view of crypto? Well, first, the Mexican culture is a lot more homogeneous than the American culture. I would say that Mexico, just like LATAM as a whole, we're always just worried that somebody's trying to take advantage of us. So it really takes a little bit more faith than just saying, okay, this is new technology. I'm going to go for it. There's a lot less regulation, which in the past is permitted for like more scams to surface. Once you convert a Mexican into crypto, they get it. And they're really eager to try it and expand it. But the cultural background really makes it hard to have that initial conversation. The other thing is everything's in English in crypto. Even though a lot of people in Mexico speak English, it's so different. When you're trying to understand technical documentation and just like business terms, it really hampers that ability to do so. Words like ledger don't really exist in Spanish. Whereas, you know, explaining a ledger to somebody in the U.S., at least they have the context of what the word means. And then in the U.S., you know, I don't really have a lot of like American family. I think most of my friends now are in crypto or know of crypto because of me. So I really haven't had to do a lot of like pontification in that sense. But I do sense that people here are much more entrepreneurial. They're much more looking for profit. That's obviously, you know, the greatest country in the world when it comes to kind of like seizing opportunities and capitalism. And obviously, blockchain also allows for that. So people are quicker to jump on and say, oh, yeah, I can make money from this. Let's go for it. That's really interesting. I mean, I understand English. and I have a hard time reading the technical documentation sometimes. I can't imagine if it was in a foreign language. And I really found your point fascinating because, you know, at one point you're talking about your parents having to pay for private school and having to deal with the peso devaluation. So I think a lot of people in probably New York Wall Street times throughout, well, people are used to a volatile currency. So crypto adoption, because they're afraid of government intervention with the monetary supply. But to your point, that also just leads to a skepticism in general about like, is this to be trusted, which is kind of an interesting point. Yeah. So for us, your guys' Bitcoin for us is the dollar. Right. right? Like you want to have dollar savings, you want to have dollar denominated assets. That's really what gives you peace of mind, which at the end of the day, it's also why you're going to continue to see like an explosion in stablecoin activity, because it really allows for folks to be able to dollarize assets, kind of like almost frictionless. You don't have to go to the border to like go buy dollars. You don't have to go through the bank account and really pay too much money for a dollar. But yeah, we have seen our currencies lose a ton of value, sometimes overnight. So adding volatility on top of volatility, it's just something that is not as easily digestible as it is for people who have lived always under the currency that's pretty much the world currency, like the dollar. Yeah. I started three years ahead of you at Wall Street, but I remember when you were starting right around the crisis, when Bitcoin started being talked about and people were pitching me on replacing the US dollar reserve, I was like, that's just 
not going to happen in my mind. And what's been so fascinating, and there are some people that still have that strongly held belief, but the rise of stable coins has led to the dollarization in a way that's kind of interesting that crypto did the exact opposite or could possibly do the exact opposite of what people pitched me of instead of replacing the world reserve currency, exporting US dollars everywhere in a much easier fashion than it is today. I've seen it with like my family, right? Like their dollar savings are now in die. Whereas before, like it's actually even dangerous to have dollars at home. A lot of banks won't allow you to have dollar bank accounts because of obviously the governments want to regulate the currency, make sure it doesn't, you know, suffer from just being replaced by the dollar. But now you have it on chain. And so it really makes it easy to have that safety net, which in the rest of the world is the dollar. So when you think about like the Mexican debt crisis, it was because the country had to pay back its own debt in dollars. But how concerned should a foreign country be? Would it be that that's going to be an area of resistance that, oh man, now you can get rid of the peso, hold, die, and we can't control it through our banking system? Yep. And that's where you have capital controls and currencies with like really weak economic kind of like standing where folks will tend to want to buy hard currency, like the dollar. And just that natural demand for the other currency makes your local currency worth less and less. And if you have that denominated in dollars, that obviously complicates it for you. Now, you as the government can't print more of your local currency, but a consumer can't. And so that really is where the difference is between the government and you know the normal person down the street. Like you and I cannot go print more money unless you obviously minted apes this time last year, then you were printing money. But obviously that's a different conversation. No, and so that's the risk. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, once stablecoins really take off in emerging markets, there is a move towards just taking that ability for local citizens to hold or transact in dollar-based stablecoins because they're really a good way to go around a lot of those capital controls. I know you've done a lot of work on payments and dealing with Latin America and all the fire blocks. Do you see that as the greatest use for stablecoins as emerging markets before it gains maybe adoption in the developing markets? Yeah, I think the savings and cross-border payments use case, obviously remittances, are a gigantic business in Latin America. A lot of us have migrated to the US, Canada, looking for better opportunities at the end of the day. Everybody's trying to feed their family. Everybody's trying to put a roof on the table. We left people back at home. So sending money back is super, super important. And you have businesses like Western Union that enable that, but also charge a lot of fees. So blockchains are able to minimize that and obviously lower the transaction cost for the average user. So that's a type of payment. And then international business as well. Like there's a lot of people who love to buy things online, but they might not have a credit card. Credit card rates in Mexico are like 40%. So imagine if you can pay in stable coins instead. Maybe those merchants can't take pesos, but they will gladly take stable coins. So, you know, as a user with no credit card or no access to broader financial tools, being able to pay via stable coins really kind of helps you out. So yeah. Definitely payments, I think, will be the biggest use case for stablecoins in Latin America and probably around the world, like even developed countries, right? Like DeFi is awesome, but the average user probably won't use it too much, like the average consumer, but we all pay for stuff every single day. And so one day you use your credit card, you swipe it, the next day you like present it. Now you just use your iPhone or your Apple Watch. One day that will be with stablecoins and some sort of like, maybe the Solana cell phone or something like that. Sergio, this is fun. And I know we could talk for hours more, but we have to end it somewhere. So 
I wanted to end with our closing question. What are you most excited to see built or invest in or support over the next six months and over the next six years? Over the next six months, I think, you know, we're still in a bear market. And I think this is a great opportunity to help folks take the time to get educated about the technology. So I'm really happy to see a lot of educational initiatives in the space. I'm I'm excited to contribute to some of them. I think education really is wealth. And given that stuff's not pumping left and right, there's like no need to FOMO. You don't feel like if you're not, you know, looking at the open sea activity feed the whole day, you're missing out. You can take time to go back and, you know, read the Ethereum white paper and like know what this whole technology is about. So that's what I'm excited about. The fact that this slower market would allow folks to hopefully educate themselves, which will set us up for the next big run, whenever that is in a year or two, hopefully in six months, even two months. So read up folks. (laughs) No, but I think over the next five, 10 years, I think the ability to make business more efficient through the use of blockchain technology. We always spend some time talking about payments here, but you know, obviously Web3, NFTs, the ability to increase your surface area if you own IP, the ability to interact with more customers, the ability to be able to connect better with your customers, kind of like develop a more robust CRM tools, just given the features of technology and what that can bring not just for the businesses, but also the consumers, right? At the end of the day, the US GDP is what, 70% consumption. And really that's what makes the country so happy in a way, like right? the ability to sit there and be happy and consume, not worry about stuff. And I think blockchain will enable that. And obviously there's morality questions about just unlimited consumption, but it is what we have today. And so I'm excited to see businesses really take advantage of the technology and make things a little bit more efficient for everybody involved. Awesome. Sergio, this has been fun. I always love talking to you. I always learn a lot. So thank you for coming today. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate the invite and I love what you guys, or what you've been building. And so I look forward to seeing you continue to progress on this journey. Thanks, Sergio. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 